good, good loving. Corporations are bitches. <laughs> <laughs> and away we go. <laughs> Baltimoreans is a member of the Baltimore Sports Report Network. Find, find more podcasts like this at BaltimoreSportsReport.com. You're listening to Baltimore On. The home of the all-weather fan. My name is Sam Dingman. This is Alan Smith. Let's get stupid. Baltimoreans. Hello, Baltimoreans. How are y'all doing? Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to episode 84 of Baltimoreans, the show that, like Seattle Mariners general manager Jack Zdurianchik, is displeased with certain members of the team for reporting to work 40 pounds overweight. <laughs> <laughs> I we, resent that. We won't say I resent that. Well, see, I was going to say we won't say who, <laughs> but now everybody know. I'm Sam Dingman, opposite Tank Ass, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we've got a fantastic program in store for you this week. In just a moment, we are going to bring you our most famous recurring segment, the Larry Harlow Franchise Report. Larry, of course, is the proud owner of the only triple slash line in baseball history comprised entirely of the number three. <laughs> a dubious, a dubious achievement. Finishing the 1975 season with his batting average at 333, an on-base percentage of 333, and a slugging percentage of, Alan, can you guess what it is? I, I'm, I'm going to go with 333. You are absolutely correct. That Harlow played in only four games that season is generally thought to be an inconvenient detail that should probably be ignored. Probably so. Following this evening's franchise report, we've got a great interview with April Weitzman, who, as a Blue Jays fan, will throw some cold water in the face of anyone who thinks that bringing in a few big-name players automatically makes a team into a contender. Except for we're clearly a contender. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We can agree on that. Yeah. She'll be throwing cold water on other people. (laughs) Okay. That seems (laughs) fair. Uh, We will, of course, conclude with this week's seventh-inning sketch, which will take the form of a tribute to some of the finer puns that we as Orioles fans are fortunate enough to have at our unique disposal. It's been widely acknowledged that the pun in general in comedy is just above mime. So (laughs) strap in for that one. And I I think it's fair to say that we are the Marcel Marceau (laughs) of, of punning. But before we get to all of that, ladies and gentlemen, my esteemed colleague Alan Smith is here as always to explain the particular significance of the number 84. Sam, episode 84 comes at the perfect time because last week, an 84-year-old nun was sentenced to 35 months in prison for breaking into a nuclear facility in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. I think we can all agree that this is absurd. Oak Ridge is one of the most secure military sites that we have, so Sister Megan Rice's ability, along with two other activists, to cut through a chain-link fence, walk up without being noticed by guards or a camera, and spray-paint peace messages on a uranium enrichment facility is pretty silly. Now I bring this up not to dwell on the politics, but because I want Baltimoreans out there to take a moment to meditate on absurdity. 84-year-old woman, Waltz right on in, not exactly Jason Bourne. For some more absurdity context, and boy, do I use that word loosely, Baltimoreans, here are other things happening in the world right now that live right on the edge of credulity. Did you know that someone has created a website called Bite Labs, which professes to be the first step to eventually eat celebrity meat? Now sit with that for a moment. 
That is test tube grown meat produced with the DNA of your favorite movie star. Salami of Franco, Kanye, or Jennifer Lawrence. Now, <laughs> because I am a reasonable human being, I know that there is simply no possible way this is a real thing, right? There's no way this is a real thing. There's no, everyone's first and 100% correct reaction on hearing about Bite Labs is to say, this is not a real thing. Except, it, doesn't it just sound like it has that tinge of, of, of possibility? Not plausibility, but possibility? No way. No, there is no way that anyone is that depraved and celebrity focused to want, but Oh, you could see it. You could see it being a thing out there in the world. This is America, man. You could like, yeah. It's just, it's just on that edge. And then, as we continue to meditate on absurdity, we move over to Russia, where the Winter Olympics just concluded with an approximate and very loose price tag of fifty billion dollars. Now that is an absurd number on its face. But it's also an absurd number when you take a closer look and discover that as a number, it was reported everywhere as a basic fact, but it's probably wildly, wildly inaccurate. It's in fact an estimate that is nearly a year old, it fails to take into effect changes in exchange rates, it fails to take into effect potential skyrocketing costs as the event actually arrived, and it fails to include anything more than a totally ballparked figure for corruption and graft. Which is to say nothing of the fact that the Winter Olympics include both the one-man luge and curling, which are both things that actual people actually thought up. Okay, <laughs> so what's the point? Well. Let us sit and marinate in that absurdity, Baltimoreans, because I think it gives context to exactly how absurd it is that we take the off-season in any professional sport so damn seriously. Because let's face it, what is really absurd is that our entire conception of the upcoming 162-game season, and for many of us, our entire conception with the entire Orioles franchise, which in turn is our entire conception of childhood and maybe even self, has shifted dramatically because we signed two baseball players. How much do either of these gentlemen really do for us? In our actual everyday lives, probably quite little. It's impossible to know what they'll do on the field. Yet, a truly absurd amount of time, energy, and focus has gone into trying to deduce who and what these two gentlemen will do for the future of the Orioles franchise. So. Let us here on episode 84 meditate for a moment on nuns, celebrity salami, Russian corruption, and Nelson Cruz with the following absurdity cone from the master of centering, Buck Showalter. There's a mentality that starts getting there when, uh, you know, you're, it's, it's a tough mentality. And it's, well, I know it may be frustrating for some of our, our media, but, uh, you know, it's a, we have to see how we get through each night. You know, we, we have some plans there with those plans will change, and it's a... It's, uh, you know, it's a valuation in pro progress. A lot of it gets overshadowed, and my job is to keep in mind some of the good things. You know, this is uh, part of the experience. you got to work your way through it. And let's all take a really, really deep breath before we get ourselves into too much more of a tizzy.
well, I, for one, feel more centered. Let's, let's take that, that centered, contemplative focus into our most popular recurring segment, <laughs> the Larry Harlow Franchise Report, which, of course, honors Orioles legend Larry Harlow by addressing the three most important issues around Birdland each and every week. As always, we rank these things on a scale from strikeout to home run. Now, in addition to the offensive prowess we told you about earlier, Larry Harlow made a lone pitching appearance on June 26th, 1978. This is like a, a Chris Davis pitching appearance? Well, after three Orioles pitchers surrendered a combined 19 runs in just four innings. <laughs> so, visions of 2010. <laughs> This sounds like my previous intro. <laughs> Manager Earl Weaver placed Harlow in the game to start the fifth inning. He did not fare much better, <laughs> allowing five runs in just two-thirds of an inning. Oh, boy. He was relieved by another position player, the dearly departed Mr. Elrod Hendricks. <laughs> now, Baltimore odds, it should be noted that none of the things that Sam just read were made up. Nope, those are true. Those are real things. <laughs> Uh, here are some more real things which uh, fly completely in the face of the beautiful numerical symmetry we told you about earlier. Uh, Harlow's career ERA is 67.50 <laughs> with four walks, a home run allowed, a wild pitch, and one strikeout. Wow. The guy who struck out, got to look deep, got to look deep into his, his, uh, his, his self there and see, see what he discovers. Ironically now. enough, it was Adrian Gonzalez's <laughs> grandfather. <laughs> Item number one, which has the entire Orioles nation buzzing, is the fact that the drizzle of Yoon has turned into the rain of Jimenez, and which has then turned into the veritable downpour of Cruz. But we're not going to rate Nelson in a vacuum here. So Sam, for item number one on the report today, what do you think of the Nelson Cruz signing versus the potential for the Morales Palace? Well, anyone who has listened to this show for the last two weeks knows that I was pretty excited <laughs> about the possibility of being able to say the phrase Morales Palace four times a night for the next six months. I've come to terms with that privately. I don't think that has a whole lot to do with the Orioles, so I will separate that from my response. <laughs> that but seems fair. The, the cruise signing, which I have not come up with a good name for yet. Cruise control. Oh. <laughs> Cool. Well, uh, even though you, even though you're 40 pounds overweight, I'm glad you shut up today, Alan. Um, uh, I'm going to refer to cruise control as a pinch hit double. Okay. Now I'm going to call it a pinch hit double because uh, we were not expecting to get production uh, out of this part of the lineup this season. I think all Orioles fans had pretty much written it off as all but a ver uh, guaranteed black hole in the lineup, the DH spot. But now, uh, Nelson Cruz has come in on a, a very affordable contract. Yes. And all he basically has to do is uh, inhale and exhale <laughs> to be better than last year's goon parade of DHs. It is um, a remarkably low bar. That seems fair. And I think that the cost uh, of the contract puts a lot in, in, that, in that bandwagon as well. I don't think that... Either Morales or Cruz are um, people you build around for the long term. So I'm glad we got whoever we ended up getting for one year. Um, I don't think that Nelson Cruz is as good a baseball player or a good as, I, let me should, I should say, as good a hitter 
as Kendris Morales. Agreed. And I'm a little bit worried about the post-steroid slide. So I'm going to give it a a well-struck single. Um, and I think it is a good workman-legged bat. I don't think that our lineup needs more people who strike out a lot. Um, <laughs> Too bad. We just got one. <laughs> but but <laughs> I don't know that it improves the team as much as a lot of prognosticators are saying it does. But it could be worse. Well, what do you think about what do you think about its role as a as a significant move in the free agent space? I think I think that that it what I like about it is that it's a significant move in the free agent space without tying the Orioles up at all. I agree. Um, and I think that Cruz is going to be coming off uh, really, really wanting to prove that he can play baseball without cheating. Um, so if we're ever going to get him at all, it's going to be you know this is going to be the year to do it. Oh, I'm sorry. Did you mention that Nelson Cruz cheated at baseball? (laughs) Item number two on the Harlow Report this evening is the trenchant and oft-discussed issue of steroids. Now, we know that Nick Marcakis is clean, or not using steroids correctly. (laughs) And we know that Chris Davis, despite being cut from the same cloth as Thor himself, is an outspoken critic of them's what use. So, Alan... What is your ranking of the public statements made by Marcakis and Davis to the effect of, we don't love that Cruz is here, but we're going to support our new teammate. Are we worried about the harmony in the locker room? I am a little bit worried about the harmony in the locker room. Uh-oh. Uh, I don't have... I'm going to give the uh, outstanding issue of steroids a um, a strikeout. Mm. A traditional strike-three looking because I think it's something that we continue to not address in any way, shape, or form. We're not moving the bat, uh, and we're paying this man $8 million after directly after coming off a suspension. Uh, I don't think that Nick Marcakis is the best outfielder of all time, but I do think he plays the game correctly, and I appreciate <laughs> that in him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I, I am a little bit—I uh, think that the Orioles— were one of the worst steroid-abusing teams in some ways. I think it was a place that a lot of people were using back in the day, and I think that we're sort of coming out from underneath that shadow. And I'm a little bit surprised that Peter Angelos went for Cruz over Morales because I sort of thought that he was going to be a uh, a, a teetotaler in this direction. So I am a little bit worried about it. I think that this is not a particularly forgiving... I mean, I think that Buckshaw Walsh will keep everybody in line, and I don't think it's going to come to fisticuffs or anything like that. But it feels a little bit like a hired gun... And I will be curious to see if um, a hired gun that people are predisposed to not like all that much messes with the sort of amazing chemistry that I think the last couple years of teams have had. Well, and I'm glad you mentioned the fact that he's getting paid $8 million after cheating at baseball, after openly breaking the rules. Because there's a lot of people who are saying, oh, this poor guy, you know, like this contract he ended up getting, he only is getting $8 million. He did give up $14 million. He left $14 million on the table. Supposedly he had this five-year, $75 million offer from the Mariners and Curtis Granderson, who has, you could say, comparable skills, ended up getting four years, $60 million from the Mets. All those things are true, but Nelson Cruz is still getting paid $8 million this year to play baseball <laughs> after flying in the face of the rules of the game last year. True. It's, it's not as though it's not as though he's really being made to suffer here except relative to other people who enjoy outsized rewards for that skill set. But uh, so you said you are giving it a a strikeout looking. Um, I am going to give it 
a I'm also going to give it a strikeout, but it's Brian Mattis striking out David Ortiz. <laughs> because it's a sure thing. Okay. And the reason I say that is it's a guaranteed strikeout. This is a bit of a convoluted answer, but okay. my point is if there's anything with the Orioles, I think, our, I think by the way this is our first totally situational uh ranking. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I think I'm going to do all those going forward. <laughs> Stay tuned, ladies and gentlemen. Um if there's one thing with the Orioles that I am not at all worried about, it's the clubhouse. Oh, okay. I Good. think I think Thank God. <laughs> I think the last 2 years um have really proved to us that there is something that happens in the Orioles clubhouse and whether it comes from Showalter being a manager that everybody respects, whether it comes from Darren O'Day keeping people loose, who knows what it is. But these guys clearly love playing together. They don't get too high when they're doing well. They don't get too low when things are going badly. Uh, they do a lot with what is universally agreed to be less talent than is required <laughs> to win the number of games that they have over the two years. Something in there is really working. Now, part of that is the fact that we have one of the most uh, outspoken groups of players against uh, performance-enhancing drugs in the league. Yeah. And that makes me very happy uh, as a fan to root for this team. Yes. All of these guys that we're talking about, Marcakis and Davis, as well as uh, Weeders, Machado, and other people who form the real emotional and talent core of this team, appeared at the press conference with Nelson Cruz when he was introduced. Okay. And to me, okay. what that is, is that is a show to the media of unconditional support in the clubhouse. That is those guys wanting to say, we are nipping this in the bud. Right. We have spoken our minds about steroids, but that, does, it's not, that doesn't rule out the possibility that we can welcome Nelson Cruz as a teammate on this team. He and Chris Davis played together in Texas, That's so they true. know each other a little That's bit. That's true. I think Davis is going to take him under his wing and be like, I'm going to look out for you in here as long as you keep your nose clean. Well, he's still on notice as far as I'm concerned, but... <laughs> well, th that's a problem. This doesn't say anything for the complex emotional gymnastics I'm going to have to go through <laughs> sure, to exactly. root for him right. all year long. But that doesn't matter. It doesn't. It, it, really, <laughs> it really doesn't matter. Item number three on the report this evening. Now, Sam, I, I know how you feel about advanced statistics, but... <laughs> you do? Because I'm not sure I know how I feel. <laughs> According to BaseballMusings.com, which is a real site and really wonderfully, wonderfully phrased, um, BaseballMusings.com, which is a website that professes to optimize lineups to score the most runs based on two projections of on-base and slugging, Orioles' top 11 most potent lineups, top 11, all involve Matthew fucking Weeders in the three-hole. What do you think about that? Uh, I'm going to call this a triple play <laughs> because like a triple play, lineups are a delicate art. Ah, and I thought you were calling it a triple play because if there's anyone who's ever going to ground into a triple play, it'd be Matt Wieters in the three hole every game. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, I, I appreciate the fine work that they're doing over there at Baseball Musings. Um, however, I think if there is one place in baseball where you really can maybe not quantify, but really get a sense for a manager's influence on how well his team does, it's lineup construction. Yep. And I think Buck Showalter has shown himself to be a master of this. Let's not forget that we had the king 
of low on-base percentage, middling batting average, but high power, leading off for in the person of J.J. Hardy, leading off for the majority of the 2012 season. That's true. Let us not forget that Nate McLeod continued to lead off for most <laughs> of the latter half of last season when his on-base percentage sunk, I believe, south of 300. That's true. And yet... We still won a lot of baseball games, and I think there is an element to lineup construction that indicates to players uh, where they kind of sit in the pecking order, what the manager feels confident they can do, what he doesn't feel so confident they can do, how that's going on a week-to-week basis. Sometimes you get dropped down in the order, it's a kick in the ass. Sometimes you get dropped down in the order, and it's a strategic move. I think the players feel this a little bit, because the lineup really is their experience of like showing up for work every day and being assigned a task. And there are some people who need to come into work every day and be told, you are filling the, I'm going to use a poorly constructed assembly line metaphor, get ready for it. Uh, Alan, you might be the kind of person who comes into work and needs to be told, Alan, you're filling uh, the baked bean cans again today. You're like, great, that's what I do every day. I'm going to go do that. Um, I might be somebody who uh, is perpetually late, um, <laughs> but my baked bean filling can technique is like scouts rate it at 70, even if it doesn't really manifest on the on the assembly line floor. Uh, so it may be that um, because of that, other things around the factory aren't going very well. When I said poorly constructed, I, <laughs> I really meant it. And we got to finish it now. <laughs> We're but, too far in. But Buck, as the foreman, sees potential in me and, okay. and puts me, you know, puts me at a key place. Now I don't even know enough about assembly lines <laughs> to be specific here. Well, assembly lines are tricky because the whole point of them is to remove any of the differentiation between the actual, you know, workers on the assembly line. But well, and the real problem is that blue collar <laughs> manufacturing jobs are disappearing in this country. But. <laughs> Preach. (laughs) What I'm trying to say is that I think Buck Showalter knows where he's putting someone in a lineup. And I, I, I agree most of the time that a manager's, um, real kind of, uh, tangible effect on a game is tough to pin down, but lineup, lineup design is one where I think it, it, a really excellent manager can have a very big impact that way. I, I I totally agree with you. I was going to go with a grounding into double play um, situation just because that is inevitably what would happen every time um, the Orioles got up to two men on base with uh, Matt Wieters in the three hole um, because that is what he does. And I think that there is a certain uh, emotional or uh, anecdotal evidence that the definition of um, Matt Wieters and the projections of him as a statistical being, statistical being fail to grasp. I think that one of the, one of the things that is interesting about this um, BaseballMusings.com site is how it does sort of mess with the traditional definitions of who goes in one, who goes in two, who goes in three, who goes in four, um, which is to make the case that the best batter should probably be in the number two hole, not in the number three, uh, which I think is interesting. And I think looking at who uh, over the course of a season gets the most high pressure or useful at bats uh, and where they that falls in the lineup is a very useful tool. I don't think there that that necessarily um, trumps 
the stuff that you're talking about. I think one of the problems with baseballmusings.com, if I may use my own convoluted metaphor here, is <laughs> oh, that... Please, please make people forget mine. <laughs> is that whenever we talk about advanced metrics and statistics and projections, we're talking about economics. And we're talking about a a sphere of things that projects itself to be, in a, a, be a science, but in fact treats humans as incredibly um, rational beings that always do the rational thing given a set of market scenarios. And anyone who has studied economics knows that when you actually put human beings out into the wild, so to speak, they just screw the pooch on all <laughs> rational action all over the place. Um, and, you know, so, so the, 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 there's a the myth of the uh, rational catcher that bats exactly like he's supposed to in every situation, that if you were going to plug him in in the three-hole, I think you'd actually have a case here. But we're not plugging him in. We're plugging him in. We're actually plugging in Matt Wieters, who for some unguidly reason refuses to bat from the same side of the plate and who I think every year is struggling slightly more with the combination of the potential that he is not living up to and the pressure of being uh, the the savior of Baltimore, who's not quite delivering, and the fact that he catches a ridiculous number of and innings. the fact that he catches a ridiculous number of games, and the fact that he's thinking about um, a a roster of people, a roster of arms that is changing at every moment. All of which is to say, he is a complicated man. We've learned this from the unmasked justice previews, but he, <laughs> you know, there's a lot going on there, and I think that it is not fair to treat him as a, as a unit. Yeah, I I agree with you. I agree with you completely, Alan Smith. Everybody should go check out Unmasked Justice coming soon to a theater near you. <laughs> if you're interested in a preview of that movie or don't know what the bejesus we're talking about, uh, why don't you head over to uh, soundcloud.com forward slash dingmantics where you can find all of our seventh inning sketch segments uh, for your individual listening. But before you do that, keep listening to this show because if you can believe it, and you might because it has nowhere to go but up. <laughs> it's about to get better. We're going to get on the line with April Weitzman, who is the founder of jaysprospects.com and a 2013 MLB fan cave dweller. That's coming up next. say that now but i don't know if i trust you sam what this is not some kind of gotcha interview <laughs> or is it <laughs> i don't know <laughs> joining us now is april weitzman by the way is it weitzman or witzman it is weitzman you got it right you know what i did i went back and rewatched your fan cave submission video <laughs> so you knew the answer well i <laughs> i knew the answer and i was like I called her Witzman the entire time the last time we had her on, and you never corrected me because you're so polite and Canadian. <laughs> that explains it. Hey, I, I've heard a lot worse, so that's fine. <laughs> okay. Well, with the last name Dingman, I uh, I share <laughs> in a history of, of surname ridicule. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Okay. Joining us now is April Weitzman, who has been through a lot since last we spoke to her here on Baltimore Ons. In addition to watching in horror as the best laid plans of the Blue Jays GM Alex Anthopoulos took a nosedive that would make R.A. Dickey's knuckleball blush, she was not only selected as one of the members of the 2013 MLB Fan Cave, but was one of only three cave dwellers to make it all the way to the end of the season. She joins us tonight to talk about all of that and more. April, how are you doing? 
I'm doing well. I'm excited for the season to begin. Man, even even after a grueling year of fan cavery. <laughs> oh, trust me. Uh, near the end, when the Red Sox won the World Series and uh, we eventually got home, I took about a two-week hiatus, not even speaking the word baseball. But uh, now that it's just around the corner, I'm getting really excited again. It only took you two weeks to recharge your batteries, huh? <laughs> Yeah, I watched some hockey back in Canada. It was all right. <laughs> That's awesome. Congratulations, by the way, on your two gold medals. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Yeah, that was great, by the way. Didn't really like the 5 a.m. wake-up call, but uh, thank you very much. So, April, as you can imagine, we are pretty fired up here over at Hootenanny Studios in the wake of the Orioles' sudden d- decision to make some moves in the late offseason. Um, that said, we do have a memory here. We're aware that your own Toronto Blue Jays had one of the more striking off-seasons in recent memory just one year ago. Um, if we remember correctly, you traded for the entirety of the Florida Marlins, including the <laughs> Bat Boys. The result, of course, for those who paid no attention last year at all, was a disappointing 74-win season. So tell us about your range of emotions from watching that season last year. And do you have any words of caution for us Orioles fans who are already convinced that by just signing Ubaldo Jimenez, we are suddenly World Series contenders? Yeah, you know what? It's tough. You can look great on paper like the Jays did last year, and you just really don't know how it's going to happen. Um, that said, uh, would I feel more confident about the Blue Jays had we signed Jimenez or Cruz? Or, you know, th- there was a time where the Orioles and the Jays were like the only teams not doing anything, and then you guys just came in there and decided to make us look worse. So, But um, in terms of last year's trades, yeah, we just went, the, the team just went nuts. We acquired Dickey, we traded Darno, we traded Syndergaard, we, you know, got rid of our farm for the Marlins guys, Josh Johnson, who obviously didn't pan out the way we had hoped, and now it's with the Padres on a one-year, eight-mil deal that I feel the Jays could have matched. But, That's um, not very generous of you to say it didn't quite pan out as you would have hoped. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you look at the advanced stuff, he really wasn't as bad as his, his stats show. Um, but yeah, he obviously... Yeah, that didn't work out quite as much as I had anticipated. <laughs> but, uh, you know, and then Melky had you know the tumor... Um, so that signing, you know, there's just so many things that you just can't anticipate. So sure. it's tough because on paper, the Blue Jays look, you know, similar to where they did last year. They do have Navarro now in- instead of JP, and we don't have Josh Johnson this year, but they look similar. But now everyone's thinking we're a 70-win team, whereas last year everyone thought we were World Series bound. So I kind of like the lower expectations. I'm going <laughs> to tell you guys to, like, don't claim a world series win yet just keep your expectations modest because too late too late for that but it's uh... a lot easier to be you know anticipating the worst and then getting the best than the other way around and i think the team too last year that in terms of the blue jays the team bought into all the hype and then spring training when the team just didn't pan out whether it was chemistry whether it was a wbc whatever it was it just started early on and they just could never get into the groove well, uh, we, we have a saying in the, the administrative assistant industry, of which I am a proud member, uh, which is under-promise and over-deliver. Yes. Uh, and I think, it, I mean, you raise a really interesting point because I think uh, it's fair to say, and you can tell me if you disagree, that Alex Anthopoulos, the Blue Jays GM, last year didn't really hesitate to kind of uh, stroke his plumage in the wake of a lot of these moves. He, he kind of... Uh, went ahead and got right out there and said, we've made the moves we need to make to win, and we're confident this can be a winning team. 
Um, and then, Which in his defense, he kind of has to say. True, true, especially because he traded away so much of the farm. Um, but one of the things I like about what Dan Duquette's approach was this offseason is that for the entire, uh, the entirety of it up to this point, he really really did everything he could to tamp down people's expectations. He said, oh, we're going to grow pitchers from within. We're we're not going to make our significant moves in the free agent market. And then just when everybody was convinced that uh, they could leave us for dead, we swooped in and made these two big high-impact moves. Yeah, I, I definitely think the second move was partial to the first move, whereas, oh, we've already gotten one, you know, compulsory pick gone. Let's let's do another. But, <laughs> yeah. I mean, Anthopolis was telling us pretty much the same thing this year as, as Duquette was. I went to the State of the Franchise event, and Anthopolis was the first thing he said. He said, listen, we didn't deliver. We thought we were going to deliver, but we didn't. But we've got a plan, and supposedly this is the plan. Just to, that they keeps talking about all these young pitchers that he believes in. And do I still think there's a chance that we'll sign, you know, Morales and trade Lind or something, or mm-hmm. or s- sign Stephen Drew or something? There's still the possibility. Anthopolis seems pretty adamant that it's not happening. Um, but part of me just wants to keep that faith that uh, we're going to just do something. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, so switching gears slightly. Um, we met April last year as fan cave finalists in Arizona. And one of the things that concerned me personally about the possibility of ending up in the fan cave is <laughs> the fact that if I'm honest with myself, once baseball season starts, I only really want to watch the Orioles every night. And fan cave dwellers are tasked with watching literally every single game <laughs> of the regular season simultaneously on a giant wall of televisions. And I'm interested in the rest of the league in like a general way, but the idea of being forced to renounce <laughs> the kind of deep obsession that I associate with Orioles <laughs> games, it gives me this weird pang of resentment. So having been through it, I'm really interested as a diehard Jays fan. Was that the experience for you? Sam, I mean, on top of everything, not only did we have to watch 2,469 games, God. but we had that tiebreaker game, and we, we had a record, no, I'm not kidding, a record number of extra innings played, and let's be honest, it wow. wasn't the 7 o'clock Eastern games that were going extra innings. Oh, no, that it never was happens. Those, it was always the West Coast games. It was always watching baseball till 2.30 in the morning, and always on the days that we had to be back at the cave at 8 in the morning, so... Um, to answer your question, um, <laughs> I, I definitely like broadened my awareness of, of pl- other players. I always thought I had a, a good understanding, but my passion for even the National League grew because I was paying attention to guys who, to be honest, I hadn't really heard of a lot of the guys on the Padres, you know, as an example, right? Mm-hmm. But now I'm like, oh, right, yeah, I know him. And having them, having some of the players come in that, we probably would never have gotten a chance to interact with at all. Um, that was a very good experience as well. So um, it wasn't tough from a Blue Jays perspective. Of course, when the Blue Jays were playing, I was like primarily focused on that game. But at the same time, the, there was always somebody screaming, hey, look at that TV, look at that. Um, to give you a bit of a timbit about that, mm-hmm. um, the instant replay is the worst thing in the MLB fan cave because <laughs> when you're watching 15 screens and there's a screen you like catches a glimpse of your eye and there's a home run, you're screaming home run, home run, home run. 
And about 10 seconds later, you realize that it already happened a few innings ago. <laughs> but, um, yeah. <laughs> so you're there you it's a danger to your your credibility as someone who can understand events taking place right in front of your nose fortunately i didn't tweet anything so uh we're okay there but uh yeah no it's a it's definitely a mind game sometimes it just sounds grueling it just sounds grueling to me to be honest when when i spoke to sam last year i was like you know what this is gonna be like it's going to be awesome. It's going to be great. And don't get me wrong, it w- it was awesome and it was great. And to be able to be there till the end was incredible. But it was definitely harder than it looks. And like a lot of people are looking for advice. They're like, hey, but you did this last year. Would you mind giving me some advice? And it's like, be prepared to, you know, give up your life and literally live <laughs> baseball. And it was tough too because like I was complaining to a player once. I was like, yeah, I missed my best friend's wedding. And he's oh, like, wow. how do you think I feel? I'm like, touche. <laughs> but um, yeah, we definitely got the, the, the understood just how demanding a full baseball season is compared to other seasons. It was there was not a day, single day off in seven months. And I, you know, I could probably count the number of hours we got of sleep on one hand every night for seven months. So that's fascinating. Um, wow. Yeah. A lot of fun, though. A lot of fun. So, I mean, uh, uh, the the other side of that coin, of course, is the player is getting paid millions of dollars. Um, <laughs> we, we... I didn't get paid that. I did not get paid that. <laughs> <laughs> Highs and lows, but uh, th- that that sort of that sort of gets in some ways to, to a segue to my next question here because we um, we recently discussed a piece of fan cave related news here at Baltimoreans. That we'd like to get your take on real quick. At one point a few weeks ago, Sam noticed that one of your fellow cave dwellers had taken to Twitter to see if anyone could get him FanFest tickets. And we thought it was a little weird and maybe a little pathetic that his favorite team, whose logo he had proudly worn every day in fan cave videos for several months, wasn't willing to kind of help him out with a basic fan cave, I mean, a fan fest for life kind of pass. We sort of felt like a couple of FanFest tickets would be the least that a team could have done. And I'm curious to know what your experience in the Fan Cave, like, did it build a relationship with the Blue Jays at all or with baseball in general? Did it make you appreciate the world of professional baseball? Like, you said that you now appreciate the grind of it, but did it make you cynical in any way, shape, or form about the fan relationship with with the team? (laughs) (laughs) A telling Um, chuckle. A telling chuckle. (laughs) No, actually, uh, the Blue Jays have been great. I I have been trying to meet with them since being back, but obviously they've been boggled down with multiple things. They have asked me for some advice on going forward with their social media, so I'm glad that uh, there's going to be some open connection in the coming weeks. Yeah. Um, But I do think it's tough coming from an organization point, point because they they do know that we've lived and breathed their brand, and I know that... A lot of us in the cave, we were solely focused on our team. Even though we were representing baseball, we were trying to represent our team and brand our team every day. Um, so it's tough that, you know, we, we had hoped that we'd all go back to our respective cities and uh, be poached by them, I'm sure. <laughs> Welcomed but, as um, heroes. <laughs> <laughs> it, I don't think it happened for any of us, and uh, that's been an interesting perspective. Um, on the other turn of that, though... Um, Mina, Danny, and Ricardo kind of took it on themselves and and started their own little baseball blog and baseball website. So it's good seeing them still working in the industry, even though 
um, the respective teams haven't like poached them out yet. I mean, the, the the Blue Jays know who I am now, and I couldn't have said that you know years ago. Well, that, I been, mean that's certainly more than we can say. I yeah. found out recently that Adam Jones has blocked us on Twitter. Oh man, I, I'm not really that's sure tough. why. <laughs> At the beginning of my experience in the cave, I thought there would be a little more interaction between the team and I, but they always seemed pretty supportive of my endeavors personally. I had a, I, you know, they would retweet my stuff and, and get my name out and every once in a while would send a quick message saying, good work with this. It was weird, you know, I, I, I'm on this dichotomy where a lot of my friends joke around. They're like, oh, man, you're like a Blue Jays celebrity. And I was <laughs> like, well, no, but, but it's just funny because, you know, if they say it enough, I'm like, well, well I wish that it would pay off that way, you know? Like, yeah. just, all right, then if I'm a Blue Jays celebrity, how about you make me do more work for the Blue Jays. Like, I'll do it for free, but... <laughs> right. Um, Dear Blue know. Jays, everyone says I'm a Blue Jays celebrity, so... <laughs> I don't mean that as that, but... Um, yeah, I think, no, I it's think a, you're allowed to mean it as that. <laughs> I think you're probably in the clear as long as your tweets don't start to go, you know what's great? The Blue Jays. Also, bestiality. <laughs> <laughs> Big Damn, of- I had that scheduled for tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, you I just personal recommendation, do not tweet that. <laughs> Sam Sam knows from hard won experience on this one. That's why Adam Jones blocked us. <laughs> oh well. Oh, that was why. <laughs> April Weitzman is on Twitter at the handle AllieCat17. That's A-L-L-E-Y-C-A-T-17. And she's the founder of the blog jaysprospects.com. April, thank you so much for joining us again on Baltimoreans, and we will look forward to uh, a another year of the spirited second-tier American League East rivalry. <laughs> Let's do it, guys. Let's do this again sometime soon. Will do. Baltimoreans, the home of the all-weather fan. I'm Alan Smith, and as we've just heard, it can be extremely dangerous to let our expectations run amok following a bullish offseason by the front office. In fact, morons, it wasn't so long ago that most prognosticators were predicting a seriously depressing regular season for the 2014 birds, reminding us of the all-too-recent realities of seasons characterized by perpetual baseball-induced anguish. Now, for this week's seventh-inning sketch, our own Sam Dingman is here with a recollection of the extreme measures to which we, as Orioles fans, have often been forced to resort. When I listened to it first, I became extremely depressed at the foolish way in which I've wasted so many summers of my young life. We share it with you now in hopes that it will have the same effect. I play low-stakes poker occasionally with some friends, and we have one house rule. If you're going to fold, you have to make a pun on the word fold. For example, you might remark, seemingly in passing, that your favorite song is Fold Man River, or that your favorite variety of pretzel is Fold Gold before discarding your hand. The Nora Jones fans in our number often find themselves wondering why they're unable to ease my worried mind or melt my fold-fold heart. 
our coalition of Bob Seeger acolytes, upon finding themselves bid out of a pot, might tout their nostalgia for fold-time rock and roll. Since many of us also harbor a secret affection for soap operas, we've sometimes considered calling our motley crew of Texas Hold'em enthusiasts the Fold and the Beautiful. Periodically, we invite other folks to join our game, and they've often raised objections to the pun rule. Why, they wonder, can't people with bad hands just bow out quietly? What is this obsessive need to infuse the game with gallows humor? The answer to that has a lot to do with the fact that I've spent the last 23 years of my life with the unenviable task of rooting for the Baltimore Orioles. When you make the curious choice to root for a team like the Orioles, or the Pirates, or the Padres, or the Royals, or the Cubs, you reach a point where you no longer watch games because you hope your team's going to win. You know the odds are heavily against that particular outcome. But you roll the dice anyway, because the richest parts of the game have nothing to do with winning and losing. In any given Orioles radio broadcast, there are a number of moments that I look forward to almost as much as an at-bat by Adam Jones with runners on, or an attempted steal of second base against Matt Wieters. Those are great baseball moments, to be sure, but they still don't feel totally natural to expect. Their advent is fairly recent, and for the years of futility that preceded them, I instead joined other Orioles fans in anxiously awaiting the Roma Sausage ad for their trademark Choriz O Sausage. We'd shout O along with the narrator, and then hope that the next spot featured the continuing adventures of the Royal Farms coffee detective, who is consistently bedeviled in his quest to find out what on earth those other convenience stores put in their giant urns that makes their coffee taste so much worse than Royal Farms Brazilian dark roast. Seasons Pizza loves to remind us that there are so many reasons to go to Seasons, after which my friend Alan and I have a long-standing tradition of turning to one another to add, and yet so few to go to Camden Yards. It never gets old to watch Brian Mattis give up a go-ahead home run and then break into a rousing round of I can't get no Mattis faction, or following a fifth-inning meltdown by Wei-Yin Chen to loudly wonder, are you not chentertained? Our hearts leap at that sacred moment in the seventh inning when Orioles telecaster Gary Thorne reminds us that the broadcast is sponsored by Jack Daniels Tennessee Honey and that we should please drink responsibly. His delivery so delightfully undermining the message and goading us to gleefully disregard his instructions. When it comes to poker, I imagine there are other gamblers like me who certainly enjoy winning when it happens, but take just as much pleasure in twirling the chips between their fingers, clinking the ice cubes in their whiskey, smoking cheap cigars, and analyzing the behavior of their fellow players for tells. In addition to the puns in our game, I relish the knowledge that Ben will only bet if he has at least a pair, Garrett only talks if he has bad cards, Marshall frowns and strokes his goatee when he has a good hand, and you can always tell when I have a straight because I tap my fingertips against the table as I count it off in my head. In the way that gamblers love details like those and countless others, I've come to treasure the shape and texture of Orioles baseball much more than its objective quality in terms of wins and losses. In Las Vegas, they hide the clocks and give you gin and tonics for free. In my apartment, on certain Sunday evenings, we wax nostalgic about Eddie Murphy's work in the seminal film The Folden Child, acknowledge that Mitchell Hurwitz honed his comedic voice with his early writing on The Folden Girls, and fondly recall the first time our parents read us the story of Foldy Locks and the Three Bears. 
For hard luck baseball fans from Baltimore to Kansas City to Chicago to San Diego to Pittsburgh and beyond, we can safely gamble our emotional well-being on the fate of promising prospects and aging free agents knowing that even when they let us down, the sausage puns are what'll keep us coming back every night of every summer. Take heart, Baltimoreans. When Nelson Cruz is found passed out in the Rangers locker room with 17 bags of deer antler serum and a note to Ron Washington confessing his everlasting love, somehow these terrible puns that we still have our, at our disposal, they're going to make everything okay. Okay, I came up with a new one. <laughs> Let's say that it turns out that Ubaldo Jimenez is actually maybe... In addition to being a pitcher, okay. or instead, it's better if it's in addition to being a pitcher. Okay. Also a mad scientist. Well, at least in this scenario, he's still a pitcher, which is we're going to need. <laughs> <laughs> we are going to need. Uh, but his mad scientist quirk is that what he likes to do is uh, he he sneaks this strange substance into your shampoo bottle that makes all your hair fall out. And everybody knows that Dr. Jimenez is the one that does this. So when someone turns up suddenly hairless, they they have no choice but to recognize that it was Ubaldo Jimenez, causing them to say, uh, when they see their friend come into the room who has been the victim of this attack, you, bald? Oh, Jimenez. <laughs> All right, ladies and gentlemen, uh... As we have mentioned previously I'm on the totally, show... I'm totally down with the OU bald. I think we need to get a better way to get the second name in there. Mm. We'll, we'll, we'll bring that to you next week, Baltimoreans. Ooh, okay. Okay, I got you. <laughs> All right, what is the plural of He-Man? Sure, He-Mans. He-Men. Uh, uh, what if uh, a group of He-Men decided to sell Easy Pass readers on the black market? Okay. You could get a Jimenez. Ah. You know what? I'm going to workshop this one for a week, and I'm going to come is, back to you next this week. This is what happens when we pull the curtain back too far in our writing process <laughs> too here far. in Baltimore. <laughs> too far. <laughs> Oof. Okay. Okay. Uh, what was I was reading something from the actual <laughs> script, which goes like this. Ladies and gentlemen, as we've mentioned previously on the show... Alan and I tweet under the handle at bmorons, and we urge, if you are if you think this is good, <laughs> we urge you to follow us on Twitter under that handle for those emotionally trying periods between new episodes of the program. <laughs> Which, you know, those 128 hours of the week, I understand, are, are stressful for you all. Now, one of you out there has made this healthy choice that Sam is speaking of, and is in fact following us on Twitter. Uh, and he's a gentleman going by at Hubie Forever, uh, which I believe is a reference to the um, basketball coach formerly of the Grizzlies who now play uh, now is a play-by-play guy, Hubie Brown, with whom we had an exciting change exchange earlier this week and who suggested a question um, which I think is near and dear to my heart and 
we are now going to uh, pose to the rest of you out there in Baltimoreans land, which is who the hell is our closer going into this season, and who do you think it should be? Um, I personally would put my my eggs in the Darren O'Day basket simply because I think he's completely insane, and that helps as a closer. What do you think? Well, you know, there's an interesting thing about this, which is that every person who is a fan of advanced statistical analysis will tell you that the whole idea of somebody having a, quote, closer's makeup or being a proven closer or somebody's true role being closer is total garbage. As they say all the time in baseball prospectus, closers are made, not born. Uh huh. However... Every single time a team announces that they're moving away from having one true closer and going to closer by committee, it's always a catastrophe. It always is a it clusterfuck. It never works. So I, I think there is something to somebody having the, the kind of dominant stuff and strange uh, emotional constitution where you really thrive in those high leverage situations. Can I can I present a different theory? Yes. What if instead of that, it's because uh, we always associate closer by committee with clusterfuck because no one emerges from that closer by committee who is any good. So if they were all good, if they were all successful in that committee, then we wouldn't be thinking about that. But because the only time people go to closer by committee is when they don't have anyone who's any good at throwing the baseball. Right. Well, that's the question, right? That's the <laughs> question. It's kind of a chicken and the egg thing. Is it that bad teams, is it that only bad teams <laughs> try closer, by committee? closer got by committee? Or is it that if you're an okay team and you go to closer by committee, you become a bad team? <laughs> <laughs> what do you think, Baltimoreans? Would you like to see Mr. Showalter name a single closer? Or would you like him to retire the Ori notion of high leverage makeup? And focus on, I don't know, actually situational advantage pitching. Let us know at BeMorons on Twitter. Or if you'd like any of the other myriad ways you can get in touch with us on the interwebs. BeMorons.com. Click on the link that says contact. Don't we have a phone number or something? We do have a phone number that none of you are using. Maybe because we haven't mentioned it in like <laughs> yeah. four months. And I just said that in an accusatory <laughs> way like you've done something wrong. Which thank you, have. you, thank you for listening to our dumb show. No, no, you're not off the hook. Uh, Call the number. I'm so not good at this promotion <laughs> stuff, man. Tell them the number, <laughs> goddammit. Oh, right. Uh, if you want to, it's not a big deal, but it's 909 Rib Wars. <laughs> that that really is the number. It's 909 Rib Wars. Some of us. Got on the Google Voice train real early. 2009. We could choose our number, and we chose 909 Rib Wars. <laughs> well, the, the great thing about that is that I chose it because it's 909 Shazaps. <laughs> and then uh, our dear friend Adam, who is a sane person, <laughs> pointed out that people, A, might remember it more, and B, be able to spell it when they do remember it. If we tell people it's also Rib Wars. So call 909 Shazaps or 909 Rib Wars. It, it, depends, on, it depends on if you're feeling fun or hungry. <laughs> Our program is written and produced by Sam Dingman and Alan Smith. And today on the show, we featured the music of Marshall York, who wrote and performed our theme song. Town Hall, whose tune working for another song you heard leading into the Larry Harlow franchise report. 
Weather Report, speaking of reports, who is the band that performs Birdland, which we play between segments. And speaking of reports, we should probably mention, because we have failed to do so for the entirety of the program so far, that we are proud members (laughs) of the Baltimore Sports Report and the uh, excellent other podcasts out there in the world. Specifically, we would like to call out... um, the good gentleman over at Section 336. Yes, indeed. Now, they are going to be holding a live performance of their most ex- excellent and esteemable podcast on March 16th. Um, we will be getting you more details on that, but mark your calendars now. Yes, and uh, you can find out more at Section336.com. Or at BaltimoreSportsReport.com. Yeah. <laughs> I thought of three things I wanted to say, and I tried to say them all at once. So that's what it sounded like when I did that. Uh, we also use the song Sample in a Jar by Fish coming out of the seventh inning sketch. And here on the outro, it's Kicking My Heart Around by the Black Crows. Nailed the music credits <laughs> as usual. As usual. Hey, Sam. Yes, sir. What do you call Henry Arudia when he's fallen asleep under a tree, woken up 40 years later, and discovered that much like your friend Winkle, He's grown a giant beard, and all of his family and friends are irrevocably changed. I'm going to call him Henry Long in the Tooth Rudia. Thank you. Good night. Baltimoreans is a member of the Baltimore Sports Report Network. Find, find more podcasts like this at baltimoresportsreport.com.